Welcome back to the 139th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. And today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including how Biden voters are becoming more progressive, an executive order signed by Biden on Friday to reform some of the military justice requirements, and a final article talking about how we are changing the incentive structure in capitalism and how it's not going to end well. And normally I would talk here about how we'll end with our daily delight, and of course we will because we want you to leave here feeling positive and ready to take on the day. But some of you who are regular listeners or even new listeners are probably wondering, what's going on with this guy's voice? He sounds like a knockoff RFK. And no, I'm not trying to be an RFK junior. I'm not trying to sound like him. Uh, I have a little something going on with my throat, but I'm going to soldier through because all of my pre-recorded episodes that I had for you guys over the last two weeks, I've used them. I hope you guys enjoyed them. But now we're back to more live news commentary. So the future focus episodes are done. And now we're going to transition into our daily debate, which will lead off before we get to our different articles. So, are politicians audience captured? You normally hear this type of language from a lot of social media influencers, or I say social media influencers, the political side of the social media sphere. You'll hear a lot of commentators talk about how they are audience captured, or how some of the people they watch are audience captured, and they only talk about issues that their audience cares about, or they only give opinions about those issues that they know their audience will agree with. And I wonder if this same thing is happening in our modern political system. Now, of course, you should always care about what your constituents think, and you should always be listening to them and making sure you're bringing up issues that matter to them. But at some point, you cannot just cowtail to whatever the populace says. If everybody in your district says that they want to begin racial segregation again and you know it is morally wrong and you're opposed to it is it your job to completely cowtail to what the people want or should you stand up for a what you would believe is a moral higher good now uh, there are lots of people who would argue from different points of view on that one and to be honest i think there are arguments from both sides even though i think it's morally reprehensible to do something like that but The question is, is Biden too captured by his audience? That's what we're really going to address here in the first article, which comes from Common Dreams. Facing widespread precarity, young U.S. voters are becoming even more progressive. So we obviously have heard about this kind of topic before, and I will preface this by saying, One, I don't know how they ask these questions in this survey, so maybe they ask them in a way that would make people more likely to respond in a positive way. Like, if you go up to somebody and say, are you in favor of social justice? If they're not politically informed, they'll be like, of course. Why would I be against social justice? I want to make sure that everybody has the same rights. I want to make sure that the playing ground is equal, so on and so forth. But there are underlying tones and underlying messages that come along with that in the political world that some people may not be aware of. Also, there's another interesting data point, which is over the last few years, we've seen different surveys saying that conservative people are less likely or are less willing to divulge the fact that they are conservative in nature and progressive people feel more willing to speak up and be loud about their beliefs. So maybe that also plays into this. 
Or conversely, maybe the populace is just becoming more progressive. Maybe the instances of the internet allowing us to see more information, more diverse perspectives from all around the world, not just within the United States, has really shifted the demographics. So I just want to preface it with this kind of statement because while this data does show a very particular thing, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's 100% accurate. You could probably do a study in a different area of the country that would come out with different results. But nonetheless, the still is an important breakdown of what some young people believe. And even if it doesn't prove that this generation is ultra-progressive, it does show that there is a shift from how the survey was done in the past. Quote, a pollster at Harvard University pointed to a persistent sense of precarity in the lives of young voters as a key reason behind new data that shows Americans aged 18 to 29 have significantly more progressive views than young people did even five years ago. Data analyzed by the Harvard Youth Poll, which released surveys results focused on young voters every spring, found that a clear majority take a progressive outlook on what John Delta Volpe, director of the poll, called the four big political issues that respondents are asked about. LGBTQ plus rights, economic inequality, climate action, and gun violence. 62% of voters between 18 and 29, those born between 1994 and 2005, believe the federal government should provide residents with basic necessities. Just 52% believe the same in 2018, and only 44% did a decade ago. So if we break that down, maybe there's an interesting thought here, which is coming out of COVID, a lot of this generation is realizing how hard it is. Maybe they had a hard time getting a real professional, good-paying job when they were coming out of college, and that's why some of them are more willing to take government assistance. I would be interested to see because they said that 44% of the populace of this age range said that that was okay to get or that the government should be more involved in giving basic necessities 10 years ago, which would have been around 2013. I wonder if they backed it up to 2008 and 2009, if that same trend would be there, if it was a higher percentage of that population because a lot of them were coming out of hard times in the 2008 financial crisis. I mean, maybe that's a possibility. I don't necessarily know for sure, but it is very interesting to point this sort of thing out. And also, I want to highlight the four big pillars. We have LGBTQ plus rights, economic inequality, climate action, and gun violence. This generation has grown up with a lot of different gun violence on TV. And not only that, because of social media, every single incident of gun violence that could have been left in the local sphere of influence is now being broadcast to everybody. Climate change, that one is something that I don't necessarily think you could attribute to social media or certain circumstances of the day we live in, particularly. It's more just, oh, it's part of the zeitgeist and people are afraid because they keep getting told that the timeline or the, sorry, the deadline for when we have to fix these issues is getting closer and closer. Economic inequality, this one really makes sense to me, especially after 2008 when we saw a lot of the big banks get bailed out and we had a young populace that was looking at these millionaires who made these companies fail, or I take that back, made is a very strong word, that had led these companies to failure in the 2008 crisis, and then they get bailed out by the government. We've seen a large amount of the top 1%, top 2% 
continue to consolidate their gains over COVID because with that extra income or even just the income they had sitting on the sidelines when the market crashed, they were able to jump in and make large amounts of profits. So I can see why these issues are very relevant. LGBTQ rights. This one is another interesting one to me. I think because of social media and the acknowledgement that, okay, hey, this certain part of the population exists and people in that population be more willing to talk about their stories and their experiences and post them on social media and gain a following for it. It also makes sense that this is becoming more and more relevant. And you may be saying, Alex, wait, hold on, hold on. Why are you saying that social media or that this being on social media, these being the main issues there, really affects what's going on in the perspective of people? Let me put it to you this way. Do you remember the opinions that people had, or at least the? do you have a rough idea of what people thought back in America during World War II? A lot of people were not necessarily against it. A lot of people weren't necessarily in favor of it. But they weren't outright protesting, or at least a large majority of the population wasn't outright protesting one way or another. And this is because of propaganda, the amount of information that we actually had about the wars. We were getting things through newspapers, so it was heavily filtered. Now think about the Vietnam War, when we actually had anchormen in news cameras going into these wars. I'm pretty sure almost any American learned that it was the first war that was truly televised and people could see the carnage of the war zone firsthand or not firsthand but secondhand and imagine the kind of effect that has on someone's psyche when they can actually see the damage that their tax dollars are inflicting on another nation in another place so actually having the information put in front of you and being aware of the consequences of reactions being aware of what is happening somewhere else being aware of these stories puts it in the front of mind of people and it makes the issue more prominent and that's why you saw more anti-war movements that's not the only reason there are of course plenty of other factors but that is one of many that leads into this and that's why i'm saying all of the all four of these pillars can most definitely be talked about with multifactorial analysis. But one thing that they all have in common is that we have access to more information nowadays. And terrible things get more coverage. If it bleeds, it leads. That is the media narrative or the media saying. So when this sort of thing leads, because it bleeds, it gets prominent coverage everywhere. And since our generation is more online, we see more of it and they become more prominent issues. If you saw more shootings online and you saw these families that have lost their children, that have lost someone important to them, and you see them crying in the press conference, your heart bleeds for them. And the more you see these sort of things, the more present they are on social media, the more you're going to be passionate about these issues. So what is the overall thing here? Okay, we're more progressive. Or maybe we're just more aware of issues and people want to have a larger impact on what happens with these issues. So what is one solution or one way that this generation wants to go about fixing some of these things? We mentioned here at the end that they want government to provide some basic necessities, but they also want more government in general. Quote, half of residents said that they want the government to do more to address climate change. While not a majority, the number of representatives represents a 21-point increase since 2013. Washington Post columnist Greg Sargent, who commissioned the data analysis by the Harvard Youth Poll, noted that 57% of young voters told the poll takers in 2020 that the government should take stronger climate action. 
even at the expense of economic growth, and said that the dip in recent years could reflect preoccupation with economic doldrums unleashed by COVID-19. This generation has never felt secure, personally, physically, financially, Della Volp told Sargent, who wrote the, quote, big four issues, quote, all speak to a sense of precarity that young voters feel about their physical safety, their economic future, their basic rights, and even the ecological stability of the planet, end quote. So if you notice here, this is the other underlying factor. So the one underlying factor that I highlighted in the first one, we're more aware of certain issues. We have more perspectives that we can see online. The second one is this need for safety, the aversion of risk. Because we were and are the greatest country in the nation, and this is solely my opinion at this point, just so we are clear, because we are the greatest nation on this planet, we have become used to a higher standard of living. We have become... I don't want to say lazy fat pigs because that's that's just mean, but we have become used to a status quo and we want to make sure that that status quo is in place no matter what. We're not willing to risk anything anymore. We're not willing to push the boundaries. We want to make sure that our security comes first. You saw this. You saw a great example with the COVID-19 pandemic. And I pointed this out to one of my coworkers at the time, which it feels as though the American people care more about the security of their own physical being and the security of themselves and their family and the community more than they care about the freedom and liberty of each individual to act as they would. Meaning, no, you can't go out and not wear a mask. You can't go out and not have a vaccine. It's not because I want to completely limit what you're doing. It's because it's about my safety and everybody else's safety. And your liberty, your freedom will be infringed upon in order to make sure everybody else is safe. I think this is a terrible, terrible perspective to have. We cannot be a security-focused country. Because at the end of the day, we're going to make stupid, silly decisions based on security. Think of it this way. If we just want to secure our place, if we want to make sure that no one else can rise up and beat us on the world stage, now we're looking at a foreign policy aspect, but this security mentality still applies, then we will fall into Thucydides' trap. In order to protect our state, we will try to be hostile to rising states like China, and instead of being willing to take on the risk of taking them on an open competition and being willing to lose, we will actually engage and force them into a position where they'll declare war on us or we'll declare war on them. We're not willing to take risks anymore. Or I take that back. Of course, there is still an underlying love of innovation, risk-taking in the United States, but it is not being as fostered as much, and a large majority of the population is more okay with security rather than freedom and liberty to do as they wish, someone would wish, even if it could have negative impacts on themselves or people around them. And my, my great analogy that I have here is I was talking with a friend of mine's mother, and I, we're, we were talking about speed regulations, and she told me that she would be okay with putting cameras on every single street post and then using a equation to figure out how quickly you went between the two cameras that are closest to each other and then send you a ticket for speeding. And while this sounds great, okay, yeah, we're going to make sure that people aren't speeding by always having them on camera. This also is a mechanism that can truly inhibit somebody's 
freedom? What if they wanted to go a little bit faster in certain areas? And yes, it may be stupid. Maybe they bring on more risk to themselves. Maybe they bring on a little bit more risk to somebody else. But they should be able to take on that risk if they so choose. But even then, even if you don't necessarily agree with that argument, which there is a good perspective from which you could say, well, it's for the sake of the community, you actually need to limit your speeding, and you have to give up some of your rights, just as anybody does in order to be part of a society, then also imagine, and this is a slippery slope argument, so take it lightly, but imagine what can happen when that infrastructure of cameras everywhere is already in place that could actively track somebody from point A to point B and tell the government or any agency, any country that hacked into the system where anybody was at any given time. Do you really want to give up those freedoms to have a little bit of privacy that could be exploited later, even if they're not being exploited right now, in order to ensure that there's a little bit of extra safety within your community and when you're driving on those roads? It's a genuine conversation we need to have. I would err more on the side of liberty and freedom. But this next generation seems to be caring more about security. And I think that's where a lot of this derives from. And that's why I spent so much time on this article. And Biden, you know, he's losing the support a lot of a lot of these younger voters because some of them feel like he's not going far enough. And some of them feel like what he's tried to do has not done anything. It feels like he's just a stagnant president who's not actually securing their future and not actually caring about certain progressive issues that they care about. So, We'll see if Biden's able to pivot here because I think he's been trying to appeal to this progressive base more and more often. And what he's starting to realize, or maybe he hasn't realized yet, but other people on the other side of the aisle have realized, is no matter how much you give, they're always going to want more. And that's why audience capture may not actually be a good thing. Maybe you should stick true to your principles. And even if people don't agree with you on policy, they'll admire you for being honorable and sticking to what you believe in. All right, let's jump to our next article, which comes from the Washington Examiner. Biden to sign executive order implementing military justice reform. So this article came out on Thursday, but uh, the executive order was actually passed this last Friday. But I thought it was an important one, and that's why I wanted to throw it in here. So let's go over the basics of what the executive order does very quickly. Quote, President Joe Biden will sign an executive order on Friday. He did sign an executive order on Friday. Quote, that will implement military justice reforms previously passed by Congress. The order will amend the Uniform Code of Military Justice established in 1950, transferring relevant decision-making authority from commanders to specialized and independent military prosecutors for cases involving sexual assault, ethnic violence, child abuse, and murder, among other serious crimes. Biden was forced to implement these changes based because they were included in the fiscal 2022 National Defense Authorization Act, which was based on the recommendations of the Independent Review Commission on Sexual Assault in the Military, end quote. So obviously I'm not trying, or I don't believe the author is really trying to say here, even though it does sound like it, that uh, Biden's not in favor of this and he's being forced to do it. Now, what he's actually trying to say here is, Biden's hand has been forced. It doesn't mean that he doesn't believe in everything in this provision, but there are other provisions of the National Defense Authorization Act that he does not necessarily agree with. And I think this is a very important subject that needs 
to be given its day in the sun. If we are going to have it so that more women join the military, there has been a push from recruiting agents or at least more conversation about having more women in the military. I think it's a great thing. I think anybody who wants to be able to serve their nation should be able to serve their nation. And we should encourage young women who really want to pursue careers in the military or even want to have an opportunity to get a good education or just want to experience somewhere outside the United States while serving one of the greatest nations that has provided them the freedom and ability to grow up and learn and be a part of the civic process, we should enable them to do so. But also, we need to make sure that the military is obviously in good form for them. If there is a culture of sexual assault, if there is a culture of discrimination, if there is a culture of embedded misogyny, then that is not beneficial, even if these women feel that they can handle it. Because even if they could handle it, even if they are strong enough to handle these sort of problems, that doesn't mean it's necessarily fair to put them in the position where they are going to be at a disadvantage going into the military. And you may be wondering, Alex, wait, hold on, what are you saying? I know plenty of women that are in the military. And yes, there are plenty of hardcore women and there are plenty of normal women who have made it through the military, no problem. But I want to read you some of the statistics here that were kind of shocking when I first went through this article. Quote, Sexual violence has been a problem in the military for decades, but still continues to this day despite activists and lawmakers' efforts for years. Though Friday's executive order represents a major victory for them, the Defense Department's annual report on sexual assault in the military for fiscal year 2022, which was released in April, revealed there were 8,942 sexual assault reports filed from October 1st, 2021 to September 30th, 2022, up from 1% from the 8,866 sexual assaults report reported the previous fiscal year. There was a much larger jump, a 13% increase in 2021 from the previous year. And that is just outrageous. How can we justify allowing to send our daughters off to work for a organization or to be part of an organization that has these sort of incidences, these this number of incidences among its workforce. That, that's outrageous. If you sent your kid to J.P. Morgan Chase and you learned that out of the, I don't know exactly how many employees are in the military, so let's just say that there were 300,000 employees at J.P. Morgan Chase, and that out of those 300,000, about 140,000 are females. Of those 140,000 females, around 9,000, 9,000 of them reported some form of sexual assault in the workplace. That is outrageous. I would never... If I had a daughter, I would never encourage her to go work at J.P. Morgan Chase if those sort of statistics were real. Let's be clear, I just use J.P. Morgan Chase as an example. I'm not saying this actually happens there. I'm not trying to deride them. I'm not trying to imply that it does happen there. They were just one of the first corporate entities that came to mind. So in the future, I'm going to say at Bigly Boob Corp, and then at Bigly Boob Corp, this happens, so I don't get into any trouble. And I swear, if there is a company that is named Bigly Boob Corp and they come and try to sue me, I'm honestly, it'll make me laugh a little bit and then I'll be really frustrated that I have to pay a whole bunch of lawyers 
in order to protect my name. But these this won't blow up too crazy. You know, we're this is a topic that isn't too crazy. Not too many people are going to absolutely love it. So I don't think we have to worry about that coming down the pike anytime soon. But maybe if some activist is listening to this in 35 years when I'm doing something at a, a company and they're like, ah, well, this guy has some crazy views. We're going to go after them for this. I've protected myself. Bigly Boop Corp, I'm sorry if you exist and I'm calling you out and I'm being mean, but, you know, it is what it is. But besides that, let's jump into our final article. We talked about how that sexual assault change in policy is going to be extremely important. It's not going to be kept internally or solely internally in the military. It's going to be put out to another board who reviews these sorts of situations is going to try to reform the system itself. This is important stuff. And then I gave the example of Bigly Boop Corp. And, and, you know, maybe Bigly Boop Corp is not caring about their employees, but maybe also they're not caring about their shareholders anymore. Maybe they've fallen into this new idea of stakeholder capitalism. Well, that is what our third and final article is about. It comes from the American Institute of Economic Research. The change to change capitalism and why the profit motives must be preserved. So this first quote, it brings up something, and it kind of reminds me of uh, a pop culture thing. So I'm going to see if you guys are on the same page, but let's at least read it. On September 13th, 2020, Imperative 21 launched the Reset Campaign with an aim of resetting our economic system away from a profit-oriented approach to one that focuses on the common good. The launch data was the launch date was deliberate, given that it was the 50th anniversary of Milton Friedman's notorious New York Times publication that asserted the sole responsibility of a business is to increase its profits. In stark contrast to the Friedman Doctrine, Imperative 21 mandates a collective shift from the business community to replace shareholder primacy with stakeholder mindset developed by the World Economic Forum, as featured in the Davos Manifesto. So, I mean, when you hear Imperative 21, Imperative 21, what does that remind you of? I don't know why, but what I was first thinking was something from Star Wars. Maybe you guys are going to get there, said by a really evil guy. Execute Order 66. I'm sorry if my Palpatine's bad, but I was hoping my terrible voice today would actually help with my Palpatine impression. But it it sounds like something out of a evil kind of cabal or an evil think tank. Imperative 21. And this is really, really what ESG and this pushback against it has been about or the conversation has shifted towards recently, which is why are you putting stakeholder capitalism over shareholder capitalism? Why are you telling corporations that they need to focus on the common good more than on providing a profit or return to their shareholders? Milton Friedman even highlighted this. I'm currently reading... Uh, Capitalism and Freedom. And he highlighted this, I believe it was initially released in 1962, that people were pushing for a more shareholder slash common good incentive when talking about corporations. But there's one key question that he raises, which is who decides what the common good is? Is it the company? Is it the government? Is it a third-party board? Is it the UN? Is it these people at the World Economic Forum in Davos? And at that point, are you really 
saying what's the common good or what is the common good from the perspective of a group of elites or a certain class of people and what makes that objectively true if the davos population believes that the highest moral good is to kill half the population in order to preserve the food that we have or in order to make sure that we can have as many resources and have them more abundantly present for the rest of the population, then does that make it okay for them to push this on another company? It doesn't sound morally right to me. Why is that the common good? So the question of subjectivity versus objectivity obviously comes into this equation. And that's what Milton Friedman argues when he was initially writing in 1962. So, the fact that they released this after his New York Times article, which would have been, let's see, it was the 50-year anniversary, so it would have been released in 1970, the original article that they're talking about here. It is kind of symbolic that they're releasing this now, and it's funny that it's come full circle. We've now seen a more established way of pushing this stakeholder capitalism, which has been tried for a long time. People have been trying to push for social good investing, but now they have some of the largest funds like BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, pushing it from the top down with this ESG movement. Or, since they're not going to use that term anymore, this more relevant term or more recent term of conscious capitalism. Oh, it's going to be conscious capitalism. We're going to be conscious of all the negative effects of what we do. Rather than sitting down and saying, okay, hey, shareholders, what do you need us to do? Do you want us to give you a larger dividend or do you want us to reinvest this money? Now there are ESG companies coming in saying, no, no, you're going to either reinvest that money in a more economically liberal or progressive way in that you're going to invest in different types of filters, you're going to invest in green infrastructure, or you're going to donate some of that money to different green causes in order to help boost your ESG score, make you more appealing to some of these ESG investors. So you can see how ESG in this idea about sustainable capitalism, the idea that we have to focus on the common good, or at least the corporations have to focus on their common good, completely sidetracks these corporations from serving the people that have put their money into the company because they believe in them. If your parents pay for your college, or more accurately, let's put it this way, they give you $1,000 a month to put towards your different college expenses or maybe your college loans, and you turn around and choose to spend it on drugs or other sorts of material or things that is not what the money is intended for, you can do that. That, that is completely okay. But is that correct? When the money is meant to help you get through college, are you actually using their investment properly if it's being misplaced and put in other places and being misused? I would argue no. Think about it in that same way to a corporation. Investors are putting their money in so the company can grow their investment, but also because the investors believe in the mission, the underlying economic mission and vision of the company. Now, maybe some investors do care about ESG initiatives. Then fine, go and find those ESG companies that already propose these sort of missions within their economic structure. But don't force other companies to consider the social outcomes of their decisions and force them to reorient themselves 
because that is not what their goal is. If a company's goal is to be socially responsible, fine, then the socially ins- responsible investors can go to them. But leave the other companies that don't want to consider that first and just want to invest their profits in order to make more for their investors who pay for their shares on Wall Street and other brokerage firms, leave those companies alone. That is my opinion. And even with those other companies that focus on the sustainability of their product or the sustainability of the community around them, their first goal should still be profit motives. And a happy side effect of their product or of their service would be the benefits brought on to the community. But that's just my opinion on the matter. All right, let's jump to something a little bit more positive. And you've heard me rant about ESG before, but it's just one of those things. I've been reading it recently. I saw an article about it. And like I said, I've been reading Capitalism and Freedom. So it was fresh of the mind. All right, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from the Sacramento Bee. Adorable endangered tiger cubs born at California Zoo. So we all know that protecting endangered species is not an easy job whatsoever. But this does often have its benefits. Quote, a video released by the zoo shows the cubs snuggling and feeding in their den with first-time mom, Diana. They'll remain in their den for 8 to 10 weeks, zoo officials said in the July 27th news release. End quote. And, you know, their cuteness, these zoo people, they know what they're doing because their cuteness is definitely being exploited as a part of a marketing campaign. Quote, these births are so important to the conservation of the species, Peterson said in a statement. Our hope is these cubs will provide an opportunity for our guests to gain a greater appreciation for tigers and the important need to conserve them in their native habitats. And if you want to check out any of the cute photos or videos from this article or read any of the other articles from today's video, you can find them in the link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, as well as the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I put up Twitter tirades every Tuesday and Thursday. And make sure you come back for Wednesday and Friday's upcoming podcast and it does feel really good to go through all that stuff again it's been about two weeks since i properly recorded because i was doing some personal stuff i hope you like i said or in the beginning i hope you enjoyed the future focus podcast that came out thank you for joining me and with all that said there's only one more thing to say stay safe don't die <laughs>